Hi, my name is Jim Lewis. And my name is Chris Painter. Welcome to season two of Inside Cyber Diplomacy, a casual and we hope revealing conversation with Jim and I and our guest of the week that helps to go behind the scenes and really tell the story of what's going on. Mark, thanks for doing this. We're here to talk about your report, Building Partner Capabilities for Cyber Operations, which came out about a month ago. So it's timely and it's got some interesting stuff. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it and then we'll go into the Q&A. Five minutes, max. <laughs> hey, thanks, Jim. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here with both of you. I have to be a little humble here talking about this issue in front of you two. You're two of the smartest people on international cyber policy. Battery will get you nowhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but look, what we were taking a look at, originally this started, I was thinking about offensive cyber. It started because uh, George, the old Ukrainian cyber attache, who's now their deputy minister, I think, of communications. He reminds me every time he's back in Washington, which, as you know, is very frequent. I mean, probably every three or four months. He reminded me that, you know, back when he came to see me when I worked with Senator McCain in twenty. 17 that hey that they came and said look we have a problem with our cyber resilience we need some defensive help and we we helped with that we helped get some authorizations done that led to appropriations and about 48 million dollars flowed through USAID and I, I think Senator McCain deserves a lot of credit for that but he also asked us for offensive help and I remember when he left the room McCain goes that's crazy and I was like well you know uh, okay you know in general we have not provided offensive cyber help. So I thought, well, I'm going to take a look at this. As you know, only seven or eight of our allies acknowledge they even have offensive capabilities, countries like Israel, uh, the Dutch, the UK. I think the Australians have stumbled into announcing it after a major ransomware incident. And obviously, some of our adversaries announced it, unannounced have it, you know, the, the Chinese, Russians, North Koreans, uh, Iranians at a minimum. But we had not helped. So I thought I'd look at that. And about halfway into studying the offensive issue, and it's a hard issue to study because there's not a lot written on it and there's not a lot of discussion of it. And that's one of the ways we don't do it is we don't talk about it. I started to realize that just as big an issue was how do we make our partners more resilient? And this was happening just at the time that the China committee was starting to look at security ways. That This is the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, uh, chaired by Mike Gallagher and ranking member Chris Romero. So they were looking at these kind of issues, including they were asking about cybersecurity. And I did some testimony there, and I, I said that we needed to have a Taiwan Cybersecurity Act. And I, I started to think that actually we don't talk a lot, even about our defensive, you know, building our partners' uh, resiliency pre-event. And I think almost all of us know that if you could build a partner's resiliency before an event, it's going to cost a lot less to deal with an event than if you're just paying for recovery after hey, the event. And hey, Mark, when you say resilience, what do you mean? Do you mean resilience of the military infrastructure that we're going to work with, resilience of their critical infrastructure? What, what, What is it? Yeah. So yes and yes. I think it's both. It's the resilience of their military mobility. In other words, the ability for both them to generate and move their own forces, but also ability for their infrastructure to allow our military to move through them. If you think a lot about Western Europe and, and uh, the Baltic states, we care a lot about their resilience so that our forces could fall in there and have access to basic services that we expect to have in a, in a combat zone. But it's so, also about, you're right, the, the national critical infrastructure and the ability of those countries to continue to have economic productivity, 
to contribute economic warfare tools to the Western alliance, you know, to our alliance efforts to do economic coercion. And then I'd add a third one. It's their resilience and information operations. I think a lot of these countries, let me just say, starting with the United States, most democracies struggle to have resilience against information operations conducted by authoritarian states because we have a, a natural predilection to believe in the First Amendment, you know, to freedom of the press and an and open, contested discussion of ideas. And obviously, that can be that can run up against a concerted disinformation campaign by so, someone like Russia. So this is a little more focused than what Chris does. Is you're working with allies and partners, and Chris would add the global South to that, which I don't yeah. doesn't sound right. like it's. And, in and we would we would focus more on resilience piece, as you said, something okay. generally for governments, but but you know, certainly less on the offensive piece. That's not something that we're yeah. really been involved in. I think. And I guess there's also, Mark, as you know, and, and debate always is what's defensive and what's offensive, which is an ongoing debate in terminology, what that really means. And are you doing it on behalf of other countries? Or are you giving them the capabilities? Yeah, and, and you're right. One other thing I think Jim was referring to this, too. We don't worry a lot about military mobility in the global south for the U.S. military. Now, weirdly, an exceptions occurred recently. Jordan, a country we don't didn't do a lot with to work about that. But because we're supporting U.S. troops in Syria and in Jordan, we started to care a lot about Jordan's critical infrastructure. And in fact, the very first, like one of these new kind of bilateral memorandums of understanding that the Department of Defense has undergone, where we'll provide a lot of cyber resilience support to the country, has in fact been Jordan. That was two years ago. It passed the NDAA, but the, the effort's been going on by the Department of Defense for a number of years. So we, we're very selective in our military mobility work in the global south or even in the middle east but we're pretty aggressive about it with our treaty allies and partners we know we're going to be working with closely so in fact one of our recommendations and a recommendation that's in the ndaa is a bilateral memorandum of understanding with taiwan a non-ally but an important country and i think that's one of the more important cybersecurity provisions and it uniquely is in both the house and senate ndaa in my experience over the last four or five years is that if you're if you're in both and the language is like a 95% foresight of each other, you have about a 100% chance of carrying over through conference. So I feel very comfortable that that legislation is going to pass. I think it's important, but but I think that's what you're getting at. Where does DHS fit into all this? They're talking about creating regional cyber hubs, yeah. which they were. Which, so <laughs> so know, this we is one interesting. We never have too many efforts. Is well, my I, motto, and is the motto of the U.S. government. Yeah, I brought I brought that question out because DHS is doing that. State has its priorities. What DOD's priorities are for this kind of resilience may differ from what DHS's are or what states are. Is this is a whole separate bucket, or are they is yeah. coordination among these different entities? When they think, I mean, one of the the constant questions on capacity building and resilience training for partners is and and other countries is. Where do you allocate your resources? Where are the priorities? Yeah. And, how do you and your them? report said give the money to state and DOD. So yeah, what what I said was what we said was first what we need to do first we have a, an international strategy coming out in theory at the end of this month. <laughs> no, I thought it was December. Right? Yeah, it's just the end of this month. I meant end of this year. I apologize. Okay. End of the year. Yeah. At the end of this year, and Adam. Adam has enough pressure. Don't, don't yeah. you know? No, don't make. Yeah, we'll make it end of the month. Yeah, that wasn't fair. But the whole. So first of all. I think part of this is State Department has to capture 
they have to aggregate, analyze, and assess the existing programs because what you both have referred to is the fact that not in addition to state and defense, I would say we have justice, DOE, FBI, DHS, CISA separately, just like DOJ and FBI separately, right. US Secret Service, even the IRS, who by the way is good at this. You know, I don't I don't mean to when I, I'm not being dismissive when I list them last. So we have like seven or eight federal agencies. I'm sure there's more that I'm not watching here. And if you count USAID separately from state, then you have two there. Yeah, but I was going to ask you about AID, but yeah, we can come back to that. Yeah. yeah, seven or eight federal agencies out there. Look, that doesn't, sometimes they have the right expertise. Like when it comes to forensic, now I will say this, we do have duplication. We have an international forensics program at defense, at FBI, and at Secret Service. I think that, you know, but there may be reasons for that, but, you know, they need to assess all these to determine what are right. So, what they then do is they need to assess them, first do a gap analysis. What aren't we doing that we should be doing? That's the first thing I identify. I identify some redundancies, and then I prioritize what you're going to resource. Now, look, the money still, because of appropriations, State Department is never going to be the consolidated appropriator. U uniquely, some defense stuff, because of FMF, foreign military financing, and grant, you know, a grant program, does actually come through State Department. So. DOD and State Department are lashed together on this for a good chunk of DOD's effort, their non-cybercom effort, right? So I do think that your State Department needs to be the, not the arbiter of what shall be funded because they can't do that, but they mm -hmm. need to identify gaps, prioritize efforts, and that should guide the executive branch's input in the appropriation process. I don't think it will mean a reduction in any federal agencies. What I think we said in the report is it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to mandate an increase in two okay. state departments and defense departments. I think the other ones are running along fairly do well. You think, do you think ONCD has a role in this? So I, I think eventually they may. I think ONCD is uh, much like I say, CISA has 10 number one priorities and their average grades about a C minus. So I wouldn't throw <laughs> 11, an 11th in there. I think OECD's got like four number one priorities, their average grades of C. You don't say to a kid who's doing that, hey, I think one more course is what's going to raise that GPA, right? I mean, I think it's like do a better job. So hey, I think don't, don't keep us in suspense. What are OECD's priorities? <laughs> so number one is workforce, without a doubt, okay. at this point. And, I hate the, and, and, the, and the deal is no one else wants it, so they got it. Um, <laughs> number two for me is is organized is the implementation of the, of the national cyber strategy and within that it's probably has to do with the balance between regulation and incentivization across a number of, of sectors and three is one that i think they're going to have to wrestle away from nsc you know from ann newberger's team and that's the management of the sector by sector the critical infrastructures mm -hmm. we say 16 it's really like 30 if you count the meaningful subsectors or 27. Mm -hmm. But the management of that, managing 27 subsectors is outside an NSC with a staff of six's job, but it's kind of right down the bore side. The fourth one is uh, the budget. In other words, examining agency budgets. They have, they've just announced their new deputy for this is Drennan Dudley, who was the assistant before. Mm. He comes from the Senate Appropriations Committee. He's a genius. And she can put, place her hands on an agency's budget yeah. and tell right away. I've only heard, I've heard good things about her. her. So, yeah, so I think that that fourth priority does tie in here, though, because yeah. one of the things, as you said, DOD gets a lot of funding. States funding has always been kind of it's gotten better, certainly uh, in the last few years, but it's always been a challenge. And I'm just, you know, does this also tie in with states' efforts? I think Senator King has also talked about to 
give them a funding stream instead of having yeah. these pots of money. Cause that, that when I was there, I think there were two challenges. I mean, there were many challenges, but one of them was figuring out what pots of money and, and, you know, borrowing, begging and borrowing from different parts of the state department budget. And that never made much sense to prioritize. Yeah. If you're going to prioritize, you can't do it if you don't have some control over the money. So that, and I know state's been pushing that. So that, that'd be one question. The other is, you know, coordination is, is, I remember we had a tasking that went out from the White House when I was, I think it stayed, I might have still been in the White House, of all the different agencies to talk about the capacity building things they were do doing. It became a monumental task and it never was complete, basically. So I'm just wondering if that's going to have to be the baseline for kind of increasing this more in a, a strategic way and how that gets done. Yeah. So I, I agree. So I'll take the second one first and say, I'm hoping that's what the team writing the strategy is doing. Part of it is a baselining of what are the elements of this international strategy, right? To know the elements, you have to know the resources and what's being committed. And to answer the second part, yeah, I think King, but also Senator Menendez has yeah. taken this. I think Ambassador Fick has had good conversations on the Hill. I think if they do a State Department re-off this year, I think there'll be some language that helps. Look, th there is a lot of marble and granite firewalling, and, you know, it's yeah. siloing that's occurred at State Department. This won't go down easy, <laughs> but it'll go down. Um, I, I think it's the right thing to do. I think I think you, to, you it's not just efficiency. But And by the way, by having a lot of DOD go through state, you can get efficiency. Efficiency, not a word normally used with DOD, but I, I do think they can get some because the same project managers, I, I know the way Nate's reorganized that office, he's got project managers for regions looking at this. And in theory, they're doing a cut below Adam and his global strategy saying, in our region, we've got six federal agencies playing. These ones are here, these ones are there. We don't need to give, uh, I love Albania. Uh, they definitely were attacked by Iran, but they don't need 100% of our support from six agencies. They need specific things. Other aid should be going to, like North Macedonia and Montenegro, who are under a constant attack from Russian and Serbian information operations. You know, we need to spread that effort out and we need to coordinate it with the European Union, right? And their efforts. And because they they spend money too. When we spent our 48 million, I want to say they spent about 30 million in Ukraine over the same period, you know, doing the same kind of work, trying to improve uh, resiliency and electrical power grid and financial services systems. So I think NCD will eventually have a role in this. But right now, let's let State Department get their role set properly. I think they're almost more important, you know, is that is that that organization over the next three under Nate Fix leadership established their their role and really their primacy. Well, will, will this run through them? Because I, the DOD funding used to go through another bureau at state, I think. Um, yeah, Paul Mill. Paul Mill, yeah. Political military, yeah. Will, will this be channeled through them? Yeah. So, look, I think Paul Mill... Paul Mills when the less granity, you know, you know, they were an ad hoc, you know, they were late, later, later arriving. You know, they've only been there 25 years or 30 years, you know, doing this, but or whatever. But yeah, I'm joking a little bit. But I think they could work well with Paul Mill. Paul Mill wants to be efficient in this. And, you know, different colors of money can do different things. Some State Department things can't pay for military personnel, you know, and AID things. Some defense things can't pay for police forces because of lay heat, because of restrictions that have been put on over the years. So we actually do have to coordinate that very well. I think that coordination will happen out of necessity because, you know, each person, each group slightly limited in who they can help. Many of our allies and partners have completely different organizations as we do, where it's just the military. 
or it's just the police in their country. And the and the other group has no cyber defense role or capacity. So, you know, we have to be our organizations are going to have to integrate with each other. And look, if he can't do that inside State Department, Nate won't win. Right. I mean, or the CDP, the Cybersecurity uh, Digital Policy Bureau won't be successful unless they can first organize, be, be the leader inside state, then be, be the leader of the state defense relationship and then be the leader of the whole interagency. That's ambitious. I mean, the the fallback has been to have the White House do this because yeah. nobody else has been capable until Nate's arrival changed that. So how yeah. do you see that working you out? You still need the big stick sometimes in the White House to say. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So two, two things. One, Nate has to have the right manpower. So one of the things we've been pushing at CSC was we had a manpower, but along with the Cyber Diplomacy Act, it was an appropriations increase in manpower. And and to their credit, both Hack and SAC over the last two years have indicated increased budgets for that office. They see the value in it. Because to do what we're talking about takes manpower. I also think Wendy Sherman, as part of the initial setup to it, gave them a reasonable starting point in, yeah. in manpower. So, I mean, I think both those things help. I mean, but long term, they have to be properly resourced. It's like it's the same theory I have for NCD. The value in the National Cyber Office of the National Cyber Director is that it has over 100 people in it. And they're not all the kind of like machine you have to be to work at the NSC. The NSC is like an 18 month burnout plan. You know, it's like lighting off of uh, a piece of stick of dynamite. And at 18 months, it's probably going to explode. Right. me was long enough. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. I did two and a half years there and there was an explosion somewhere in the middle. But, uh, you know, my, my theory on this is the NCD size is what allows it to manage those relationships. It's the same things here. CDP has to be properly sized over time. If it's not, or if it's like saddled with, you know, missions not related, things like that, you could, this this could lead to failure. But what they need is strategic support from the White House. Like, you, right. thou shalt cooperate. Yeah, yeah. You know, right. kind of dictums from Ann Newberger and from Jake Sullivan. That would be, that, and, and I think they're getting that. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, one debate that I've seen a lot in this capacity building area is people define it differently. And so... CDP and, and the government generally, you know, there's tensions in terms of there's a lot of stuff they want to fund in terms of like digital economy stuff, right? Your report really focused on the the hard, you know, the hard security stuff, which has gotten attention, but maybe it's always there's always a bit of a a bit of a fight between what you're going to fund in terms of like digital economy stuff versus the hard security stuff. So I think your report. Is, is helpful and like saying, look, this is really important. We can't ignore this. How would you kind of figure out how to make sure, especially with that tension there, that that this is one of the things that gets priority, that the, the military side, yeah. the, not just the military side, the security, because the military is a part of that, but the security more generally is bigger. Well, you're, you know, in fact, we call them the non-traditional areas, right? Secure ICT, digital connectivity, research and development efforts. And I think Earlier, someone was referring to DHS. I think their BIRD program, their bilateral R&D program with Israel is one of the examples, but they could be doing this with other countries along the way. So I do think these non-traditional areas have to be continue to be funded. Whether they're run out of, yeah, they might come under the DP part of CDP, but I'm not smart enough a, you know, I don't understand the Economics Bureau well enough at State Department to understand, it, you know, what the advantage of them versus CDP would be. What I'm willing to do is say that the non-traditional ones are probably attacked last. Mm -hmm. But over time, you decide, is there 
is the is there more value in the integration with the other CDP efforts that should be brought in, or does it have more value in its integration with other E efforts so it stays there? But but over time, someone like you with your experience, there you may know right off the bat. But I'd be willing to give that a little bit of time and address that. If they're smart, by the way, this isn't the first strategy. They'll do it like the guys are doing the national cyber strategy at NCD, which is saying this is a marker. We're back in twelve months. Yeah. I think they actually a, said a nine living months. document. The phrase, a yeah, living a living day. document. Yeah, but you know, here's the problem in cyber: when we don't do that, look at PPD twenty one. It's Presidential Policy Directive twenty one. It's eleven years or ten and a half years old now. What emerging technology? What document that drives emerging technology should be ten and a half years? I'd like to find a Microsoft document, you know, and how they how they run their vision for their organization that's ten and a half years old. I just I doubt it. You know, I I think that you you have to be almost iterative in this field. So what do you want to get out of this report, Mark? I mean, what do you want to see change? I mean, some of it we've talked about with CDP, but yeah. what else? I, I think the, the biggest thing is is the reach is getting consolidated resourcing in CDP. I think you guys have hit on it right away. It's where you went. That's the right one. Is it within State Department? They don't have to have every penny, but they have to have control over the large funding streams, particularly the security-driven ones, and a deep level of integration with the FMF program from DOD. I, one of the other things is I want people to get an understanding of, of Hunt Ford operations. People get liquored up and giddy on these things every time there's a press release. And I, I try to tell people these are these are small teams. Most you know, Hunt Ford teams are four to eight people for several weeks. That's a Hunt Ford team. I mean, this is not, you know, CrowdStrike showing up for the next four months or six months like we did in Ukraine, you know, at six-month contracts back in, mm. in the three years leading up. It's a different thing. It's also, it's small money. I want to say it's 50 to $60 million is the Hunt Ford operations budget versus probably several billion total spread throughout the rest of the government on all kinds of cybersecurity capacity, maybe a billion to a billion and a half. So it's a small percentage. And the final thing is, every time we do a Hunt Ford operation, that CPT, that cyber protect team or cyber mission team or national mission force team stops doing the deep research and development it was doing on targeting something in an adversary. We have a limited capacity for, for talent inside, even inside cyber command. And there's a lot of reasons. I have a whole other discussion on why we need a cyber force unit. I've discussed that. But, but our ability to employ cyber forces is limited by our ability to generate them. And when we use Hunt Forward teams, we take from them. So I try to tell people, Hunt Forward is what you do kind of in a crisis or in a contingency, that is not your go-to team. Your go-to team needs to be State Department building capacity. Maybe it's a D, in a specialized area, a DOE, Department of Energy, or Department of Justice or FBI team for a law enforcement issue. You know, it, it needs to, I would, I try not to become overly reliant on that. And the, the other thing I push is understanding where we have any kind of redundancies. You know, we need, do, do need to take a look at that and make sure we're doing it right. I've heard that in the... Iranian attack on Albania and the response to that. And we kind of saw a little bit of redundancy in our forensic teams. So, you know, there might be an area there, but th well, those are some of the big pictures. Yeah. Is there a challenge, Mark? I mean, you know, we opened this discussion talking about offensive stuff, which I think you, you rightly focuses more on resilience than offensive because there's a host of issues and <laughs> sharing offensive issues. I mean, there always has been, and I think there, there will be the foreseeable future. We've seen that in NATO's construct and others too. But is there a challenge for some of the core like ally countries? Probably not, but but you know, some countries are suspicious of the US, you know, and say, 
And and they're suspicious saying, are they using capacity? And, and I play this out. Okay, well, now you have this thing where capacity building is also to enhance military capability. Does this create even more suspicion on their part saying, well, maybe we don't want their capacity building. Maybe we're going to turn to someone else because it's a thin tip of the wedge for these other things they're doing. And and how do you how do you kind of balance that out? Now, I'm not talking about like countries we deal with on the military level all the time. I'm talking about others. Well, first, I mean, I'm sure certainly the African Union turned to China and they got the full treatment in that case. With a pretty significant malicious cyber attack against them. I, I think, look, on, on this case, that's a different, the part, first of all, that would be almost all coming from the regional programs of State Department or from AID regional programs, right? So I'd leave the FMF out of that. I'd leave DOD out of it and say, this is, and, and make sure that our intent is fully understood. This is about improving digital resilience in your country, allowing your economy to be better than your electrical power grid. In other words, allowing you to get the maximum you can out of your your entrepreneurial workforce by having a resilient cyber system for them to rely on. Look, in the I got to tell you, because of the the different intents we have with China in the global South, we're often not seen as the best offering on the table. I, I get that ours tend to be smaller packages, very focused on you getting better at doing something for you. The Chinese packages are much larger, based on the Chinese coming in and doing something that benefits them and you with the probably the emphasis eventually on them, but certainly initially you feel it with you. So I, I think it's very, that's a hard competition for us. I think our, our salesmanship has to be completely surrounding the economic productivity end of it and not the military mobility. Weirdly enough, we're more ideological than the Chinese a lot of times. I know yep. they're, they're pretty straightforward about money. Have on you gotten front, a reaction? Have you briefed this? What? <laughs> on you, the front end, maybe. Yeah, no, it's true. There's a there's a cost, and you know the people people now are aware of it. One of the things I've said in other places is, I said this to Nate Fick, we have an advantage offering cybersecurity training because we're more trusted than the Chinese, right? In the global South on that subject, where they're we're not trusted is on uh, development versus strategic competition, and that's going to be a handicap. But have you talked to other countries? Have you gotten a reaction from other countries to this? Yeah. So in, in Europe, I got it pretty strong. I went to the, I gave a discussion based on this paper at their annual SciCon conference, right? So I spoke with probably after that about 20 European countries. I mean, they're, mo- they're mostly on board and most of them understand at some point they're moving, they're moving from suctions to pumps. In other words, they used to be absorbers of cyber capacity building. They can now start becoming providers. And so I think a lot of these European countries see it themselves that way. I think that's been severely accelerated by the Ukraine issue, right? The uh, illegal invasion of Ukraine. I'm seeing that. And I've talked with a- in Asia. I've talked with the Japanese and the Taiwans and the Koreans. I think with the Japanese, they're already a provider. If you go down to ASEAN, they're doing a lot of the cybersecurity training. You know, they're keeping it pretty straightforward. You know, it's pretty, I wouldn't say just cyber hygiene, but it's pretty basic stuff they're providing inside of ASEAN, but they're becoming a, a pump, a provider of capacity building. I think we could see the Koreans start to do that soon. And the uh, Taiwans, if someone's willing to take it, they can provide some of it. But, you know, it's a limited number of countries. I'd say it's in the 20 to 25 realm, you know, countries that could provide this. Hey, Chris, are we wrong in seeing this as complementing what you do or is it? No, no, I think think it is. I think think it definitely does. I mean, I think, look, for instance, 
one of the things we're trying to do is like every country wants to help the Balkans now, right? And the Western Balkans in particular, but that's not really well coordinated. So we're trying to do some work there to help bring folks together. You know, everyone from the EU, the US, I mean, everyone's in that game. So we'll, think- have a, we'll have a separate episode on Chris's vacation in the Balkans. <laughs> but, but I think that, I think there's a big need out there and things that bring more attention to capacity building and more funding for it, I think are good. I think we have to be clear on the messaging and, and yeah. what, what we're trying to do as, as Mark said in different places, but I think, you know, this has been under-resourced. I mean, you Mark, you're right. I mean, when you have a specific thing like Ukraine, people pour lots of resources into it and then ignore everything else. And so we can't afford to do that if we're going to have a program that's going to make sense from the U.S., but even from a global perspective and more countries are are seeing that. So I think I think there, there are complementary aspects. Now, as I said, we don't get into the offensive and the military mm-hmm. side, but the, the, I can see why those are important too. Some countries, they have their certs in the military, for instance. So you know, I think there has to be ways to work together. But to the extent this is expanding the pool and making more emphasis and attention and more coordination, as you envision, I think that's a good thing overall. And I think that is complimentary. You know, I think that's a great point. The military mobility argument is only something we really use when you're talking with members of Congress or, you know, the executive branch. You're trying to explain where it fits into your national security prioritization. That hey, this isn't just a developmental thing. This is a this military mobility part. That I think when we're talking about it regionally, particularly in the regions where military mobility has almost no role, that shouldn't be part of the discussion. And the only reason the Department of Defense should be there is for the exact reason you said. If a country has its cert in the military, it may be that the best vehicle for providing cert training is an FMF case. And in fact, that still may not be the U.S. military. It might be an FMF case where a contractor shows up. You know, in fact, that's most likely what would happen. So I do think there's a way to do this in the global south that emphasizes the State Department lead aspect of it, the other federal agencies, de-emphasizes DOD, and, and, and is honest. Hey, we're here about your economic productivity, the cyber resilience of your basic critical infrastructures for public health and safety, you know, water, agriculture, energy, not about whether your forces could move. Right. There is a there is a political military aspect in the sense that you're also there because of attacks common route through their country. And that building, that ability to cooperate is important. You know, I think that's that's important to stress, too, separately. But everything is politicized to an extent, but you don't you want to. You want to, I think, get countries, I mean, it's critically important countries have these capabilities and we can't just let them, if they don't have them, I think it's going to affect everything they do. So I think it's important to have lots of efforts out there, as many as we can, frankly, and try to coordinate them as best as we can. But maybe maybe to wrap it up and speaking of politicization, what's the reaction been on the Hill? I mean, who, who what's the landscape up there for supporting this kind of thing? So I think in a, is this the right thing to do, Rom? It's very positive. I mean, there's nobody who says, you know, these are the things I don't want to know. It, it's, you know, for people now, look. Even in the House. Which, yeah, but that's because you temper, you know, temper your argument. In the House, you lead with a military mobility discussion and you don't have much of a trouble. Now, I will say in the in the hack, the appropriations, given the reductions that are going to occur or 
you know, there'll be a negotiation both with the Senate, with the White House that mm. that reduces any reductions, I think. But you will you will likely end up with a flat budget, a reasonably flat budget. Now, look, are there some other areas that can be deprioritized so that some of this gets prioritized? And if it's authorized, one thing's interesting, it was authorized in the SFRA, we, uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee's, uh, the, the State Department Reauthorization Act. It will eventually get funded, even without appropriations. And my proof of that is Taiwan for military financing, right? So $2 billion was authorized a year for five years. The appropriators gave it none in fiscal year 23. But State Department just announced an $80 million program. Why that happened? Because it turned out some other program couldn't spend its money. And you had mm-hmm. money, you had an authorization, you used it, right? You, you get clearances to do things like that. So I do think over time, the authorization that occurred, that I think will occur for a, 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 some consolidation under CDP of, of resourcing will eventually lead to consolidated resourcing in the base budget. It, it won't be quite as quick as if we had a, if we were spending money like the drunken sailor site any other time in the last 15 years, but it will, I think, come to pass just like, you know, maybe a year or two slower, just like FMF for Taiwan's coming to pass just a year or two slower. Great. Did we miss anything, Chris? Do you want to add anything? Now, I, you know, I think be interesting to see how this plays out. I'm particularly interested in, and if this can survive politics and be a priority, because a lot of times capacity building is, is not, is left on the cutting room floor for various Mm -hmm. reasons. Uh, you know, whether yeah. people think it's for the sake of others and not for us, and therefore, if you're more isolationist, you run away from it, which is bad, or uh, it just doesn't make it in terms of the other priorities. But I do think it's a key one. So, Mark, uh, good luck on that. Thanks. If, if I had one last thought, I'd say it's interesting. In, look, I'm, again, I'm careful. The military mobility term can't be used everywhere. But I tell you, one place it can be used is the United States, right? We have the same problem in our own country. I don't have, I have low confidence and our port rail and aviation systems to withstand what would come from an adversary in the buildup to a conflict or during the initial stages of a conflict. So as we start to, you know, I think one of the convincing arguments when you're working with members of Congress is like, you know how you know you need to fund this and you're starting to give a lot more funding into into these efforts. It won't work if as our troops step foot one in Japan, they don't have that same kind of support there or Taiwan or Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, places where we have treaty obligations or, or agreements to provide support, we've got to have that military mobility. So I, I think it will be helpful, but that is a limited set. You know, that's 40 to 50 countries vice 193 countries. So I do think we'll have this program will have legs uh, because I have military mobility. And, and the question is, does it extend into the developmental area, you know, the areas where the cyber resilience is more about developmental economies? And, and there, I think it's important to messaging is important that this is not every country does capacity building for their own reasons, but this is not just a proxy for the U.S. trying to impose yeah. military will on on these other countries because I think that's a just as it, a it doesn't make sense. B I think it it makes it harder to have the kind of programs you need to have for countries that I think are still important to the U.S. So, I agree.